Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 18 of The Korean War. Last time we brought our narrative up to the point of the war breaking out on the Korean Peninsula. We have spent a long time getting to this point in the story, and we're still not quite there yet. At the end of the last episode, I said we were going to take a detour through Korea to address what, in a sense, has been the elephant 
in the room this whole time. Yes, for those of you coming to this series expecting a Korean-centric analysis, you may be surprised to discover that it's not until we're nearly halfway through our coverage do we decide to take some time to examine the Koreans themselves. The North-South Divide, and how Syngman Rhee and Kim Il-sung came to be, are obviously critically important parts of our story if we're to understand what actually happened in Korea during this conflict. Before we begin our coverage, though, I want to spend a few minutes setting forth my reasoning for taking so long to get to this part of the story. As you've surely noticed by now, my conclusions on the Korean War aren't exactly what you could call conventional, but I hope you'll agree that I've also never been one to lead you guys astray, at least not deliberately. To me, you see, the Korean War does not make sense unless we put it in the context of the two premier powers with an interest in Korea, the Soviets in the North, the Americans in the South. Without either of these powers, in particular the Soviets, the Korean War would not have happened. It is sometimes said that Kim Il-sung launched the war in his own initiative, or that he managed to pressure or somehow badger Stalin into supporting the venture. If we believe my findings, and if we believe that Stalin wanted the war to harm Sino-American relations and make China more dependent on Moscow, then this argument falls flat. As we've also seen, the sheer levels of aid being sent to North Korea in the spring, culminating in late April with the beginnings of a tank deployment that would furnish North Korea with almost 150 T-34s, placed North Korean military capabilities far outside of the realm that Kim could ever have furnished on his own. It would thus be fair to say that Soviet military aid made the war possible. And if it's fair to say that, then isn't it also accurate to note Stalin's tendency to never give anything away for free, and to leverage every possible position he ever gained over his rivals and his friends? It makes little sense to me that Kim would have been able to pressure Stalin to do anything, since Kim was the one in need of arms and supplies, and Kim was the one in need of military advisors. What leverage did Kim have? None. What leverage did Stalin have? All of it. In a similar vein, without the American involvement to counter that of the Soviets, Syngman Rhee's troubled regime would have been doomed, and it would have never gotten off the ground to begin with. In the minds of some historians, this conflict only makes sense by looking at it in light of a civil war, as a civil conflict between two Koreas. Indeed, some powers in the United Nations that were opposed to intervention would put forward the argument that the Korean War was a civil issue between Koreans. And their reasoning for this stemmed from the fact that, since Korea had been artificially divided, any war between either side was still merely a war between the Korean people, regardless of what the state papers of either Korean soldier said. Through such loopholes, shoddy as they were, Reluctant British statesmen, as much as suspicious UN ambassadors, would attempt to avoid the obligations set forth in the UN resolution calling for condemnation of the North's aggression. All of these are parts of the story we will come to, but I wanted to emphasise again my reasoning for taking this approach to the narrative and for doing away with the conventional explanation for why the war broke out. The Korean War was an event in history that refused to sit still. And it is perhaps one of the most chock-a-block periods of history I have yet to examine in the history of when diplomacy fails, and that is saying something. Covering the Korean players last in my background studies was an exercise of necessity as much as it was representative of my narrative approach. Had I delved into all the players in one go, the Chinese, Americans, Soviets, UN, etc., I feel we'd be quickly overwhelmed. This way I can take the next three episodes to put 
into context the experiences of the Koreans in light of what we've learned from the last few episodes. In this episode, we'll also look at some aspects of the history of the Korean Peninsula in general as we tackle the life and times of Syngman Rhee. In the next episode, we'll look in more detail at both the division of the peninsula, the Soviet interest, and the Soviet puppet Kim Il-sung. If this all sounds good to you, then thanks, thanks, thanks for your patience again. I do, of course, accept that the way of approach to this conflict has been anything but conventional. However, I hope you'll be able to agree by now that because of this approach, the Korean War has never seemed either so interesting or so important to the establishment of the Cold War era and to the defining period of Soviet-American relations. And to think we're not even halfway there yet. With these caveats out of the way, then, I think we can get down to business at last. I will now take you to a startling scene that of Syngman Rhee as a nine-year-old boy in 1884. The song of the week this week is brought to you by something brand new. It is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fells' newsletter. That's right, guys. We have decided that enough was enough with social media and being ignored, and we're going to find those history friends out there that want to be found, rather than putting loads of stuff out there and hoping that people see it. If you weren't aware, social media these days is a very much hit-and-miss kind of game. You can put a lot of things out, and sometimes they'll be seen, sometimes they won't be seen, sometimes people will miss big announcements, and sometimes I'll get asked questions that I've already answered on social media, which, yeah, goes to show that they didn't really see that post to begin with. And it can be kind of annoying, because... With something like a history podcast, you have to invest time and money in some cases into social media, with Facebook pages, with Twitter and stuff like that to get your stuff seen. Because if people find posts on Twitter or Facebook, they might think, oh, this is interesting, I'll check this out. And that's the goal. As much as it is to maintain a presence on social media and show people that you do in fact still exist, it's also nice to be able to interact with you guys on like the likes of Facebook and the Facebook group and Twitter as well. But I have found that it's just it's just gotten a little bit much. Now, this by no means is my way of saying that I'm leaving social media. I don't think I ever will. But really, I mean, my Facebook visibility has been cut. I think I'm a quarter as visible as I used to be. I'm reaching far less people than I used to. And yes, the Facebook keeps on telling me to pay money. If I could only pay money to boost my posts, I'll reach so much more people. That boost button has gotten a lot much, much bigger over the last few months, but we're not going to get into that because it's a waste of money. Trust me, I've tried it before and you reach about like three or four new people, you get three or four new likes and then they go away after a while because they're like, never mind, I don't really want to listen to this podcast. So it's kind of pointless. So this is a roundabout way of me saying that I'm going to focus on something else as well, in addition to the social media stuff, so I don't keep on being disappointed. And that's where the newsletter comes in. Yes, you may be surprised to learn newsletters are actually a very effective and and popular way for podcasters to reach their audiences. Having looked this up myself and having seen how to get, like, you guys to engage more with this podcast and to reach out to you more and for you guys to respond to what I put out too, the consensus seems to be that newsletters are the way to go. But what even is a newsletter? And that sounds like a stupid question because you might know what a newsletter is and you might be horrified that I even think you don't know. But newsletters can take a whole load of different forms. You can attach things to newsletters that 
people wouldn't necessarily get anywhere else. For example, I could attach a chapter of my book. I could attach a code for the shop that will give you 10% off. I could attach a story from history that you wouldn't be able to read anywhere else. I could attach little extra bits from the latest episodes. I can let you guys know what's in the latest episodes and what's come out this week. And that's why I feel like the newsletter is good. Each Saturday, because Saturday is the day that it will be sent out, each Saturday they'll get a rundown of the things that have happened that week. They'll be able to access exclusive things that you won't be able to get anywhere else. And you'll also be talked to by me every week on a level, on a personal level, that you also won't see anywhere else. You might think it's a little bit gimmicky and maybe even unnecessary. And you know what? Maybe it is. Maybe I don't need to have a newsletter. Maybe I don't need to have social media or Twitter or anything like that. But at the same time, I really like talking to you guys. I like updating you guys with what's going on. And especially with this year to come with new podcasts, with new books coming out and hopefully with Cambridge happening too. I want to be able to have a platform that I can send to you guys and that I can talk to you on that won't be drowned out, (laughs) drowned out by the absolute crap that is on Twitter or on Facebook, etc. So this is the best way of ensuring that. You'll get sent an email once a week, no spam, I promise, I promise this, what even spam would I send you anyway? You'll get sent it once a week, and in that, there's pretty much everything you need to know about the week that's gone by and when diplomacy fails. If it sounds like something you're interested in, all you have to do is click the link below in the description, And hopefully it works and it'll bring you to a page where you can just put in your email and add yourself to the subscription list and hey presto, that's it. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. And I'm sorry this whole ad for this newsletter has gone on a bit of a while, but I just needed to explain and justify to you guys and I didn't want to have to release a state of the podcast address just for this development. But I really would encourage you guys to sign up. If you feel like you like this podcast and you're interested in what goes on within and without of its walls, then by all means, sign up. But if you don't care either way, that's fine. If you just want to listen to the podcasts and you don't really want to have to deal with me or my shenanigans, then that, of course, is grand. I would like to say a huge thanks to those of you that have signed up already. We're already past 50 subscribers, and while that's quite a small number, it's actually a lot larger than what my normal social media presence is. So it's great to see that 50 people have signed up, more than 50 people, in fact, And I'm looking forward to reaching 100, 200, 300, and just reaching more and more people with this. And I'm really excited for the potential that it has. Okay, so I don't want to bore you guys any longer. Sorry for boring you with this so far, but thank you very much for listening, and thank you for your patience as well. I hope you guys enjoy the latest episode. Now, let's talk about the song of the week, because the song of the week this week is by Georgie Price, and it's called Morning Will Come. It was released in 1923. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 18 of The Korean War. Nighttime is another word for sadness. We lighten gladness unto the day. Darkest hours come before the dawning of golden morning. And so I say, don't find the darkness, morning will come. Shadows are bound to go by, and when they fly, rosy dawn will kiss us. Mind your pride. 
Syngmanry was blind. At nine years old, an epidemic of smallpox in his village, located in the southwest corner of the Korean peninsula, had taken off many of his neighbours, but it had taken his sight as well. The old remedies wouldn't work, and his parents were crushed. In desperation did they turn to a foreigner, a medicine man by the name of Dr. Horace Allen. Allen was one of many hundreds of thousands of foreign missionaries who felt the calling to uproots from their homes and travel the arduous distance into the fog of war and mystery which surrounded Korea. For all the myth, legend and foreboding that surrounded Japan, the Korean peninsula remained a place of wonder and unknown long after Japan was forcibly opened to the West in the late 1860s. Medical missionaries such as Horace Allen were the first impression of Western influence which the likes of Rhee's family gained. The other significant impression was gained through the varied mission schools which had cropped up around the same time. Contrary to the dire diagnosis of the traditional healers, Rhee was completely healed by Dr. Allen in an event which surely made the later exploits of Rhee's life possible. One finds it hard to imagine that a blind man would have made such a mark on Korea as Rhee did, had he not possessed those dark, secretive eyes which enabled him to spot political opportunity and negotiate with potential allies like nobody else could. To nine-year-old Rhee, though, what the Western doctor's healing powers did for him above all wasn't merely to cure his blindness, but to inculcate an appreciation in him for Western methods. The historian Richard C. Allen, in his book Korea's Syngmanry, an unauthorised portrait, noted on the event that Rhee's experience with Horace Allen may have been the factor that stimulated Rhee to further interest in the West, or it may have been the growing influence of missionaries in Korea. In any case, at the age of 19, Rhee began attending, at first secretly, the Pai Chai School, founded by a Methodist minister. There he learned of the Western world and confirmed what his episode of blindness had led him to suspect that Korea was hopelessly backward and was falling behind even its eastern neighbours. The years at Pai Chai had a profound influence upon Rhee's development, and its teaching methods as much as its teachers cannot have failed to have made an impression on Rhee that the West was a powerful, influential, focal point of the world, particularly when set in contrast to his weakened homeland. Perhaps the most striking impact that his schooling experience had on the young man was in how he presented himself. While we have up to this point been calling him Syngman Rhee, this was actually the westernised version of the name he was born with, and the one that he chose for himself to make pronouncing his name easier for westerners. How considerate of him. Well, Rhee's Korean name was Yi Sung Man, and Rhee's family actually traced their ancestry to Prince Yang Yong, a younger brother of King Sejong the Great, who was one of Korea's most accomplished kings in the early 15th century. This was the Yi dynasty, of which Ri was likely named. From the late 14th century until the extinguishing of Korean independence in 1910, the Yi dynasty was the royal family of the whole of Korea. Historically, Korea had always been situated in a position of grave vulnerability. Its neighbours, be they Chinese, Japanese or Mongols, had a history of invading their peninsula or of using it as a stepping stone to reach Japan. In fact, as one historian put it, 
The Korean people know war. One bit of their lore is that the country has been invaded at least 600 times in the last three millennia, though the counting includes incidents of piracy, minor punitive expeditions, and naval encounters along Korea's long and island-dotted coastline. Nevertheless, the Koreans have a record of victimization that rivals that of the Jews, Poles, and Irish. Certain events in the Korean national consciousness stood out. Understandably, these were moments of defiance, when despite the odds, the Korean people retained their independence. In the Battle of Myeongyang in October 1597, and apologies in advance for pronunciation, but believe it or not, I do not speak Korean. I'm going to do my best here. But anyway, in the Battle of Myeongyang in October 1597, the Korean Admiral Yi defeated the numerically superior Japanese at sea in the context of a war which had begun several years before and which had wrought death and destruction on the Korean Peninsula. This war was one of several attempts by the Japanese to acquire the Korean Peninsula as a jumping-off point or a base for further raiding and conquest. The place would serve as a kind of hot potato in the Sino-Japanese relationship for the next 300 years, culminating in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-5, wherein the power of China was decimated by Japan's modernized armies. From this point in history, the Korean pivot turned determinedly away from China and the traditional big brother relationship of Sino-Korean relations, and Japanese influence became more and more prominent. For the next 15 years, Japanese officials tightened their control over Korea, and when the region proved to be a sensitive issue in Russo-Japanese relations, the solution in Tokyo was again viewed to be war. A preemptive strike against the Russian Eastern fleets crippled St. Petersburg's ability to resist, and following a doomed campaign of racially charged ignorance, the Russians fell into revolt and signed an ignominious peace. While the Japanese paid a high price for victory, their control over Korea was now assured, and Western disinterest meant they could essentially do what they liked with the place. In Syngman Rhee's mind, the tug-of-war between the different factions vying for position in Korea mattered less than the evident inability of the Koreans to defend themselves. The ignominious position of the court in Seoul, still ostensibly royal and ostensibly independent, boded ill for the future of Korean sovereignty and renew it. He wrote several editorials for his school newspaper in the Pai Chai. When this proved unfulfilling, Redetermined to buy his own printing press and found his own newspaper. In his mid-twenties, Rhee and some of his peers in the school had already made their first distinguished steps towards fighting for the independence of their homeland, but the fight was not to be an easy one. So from 1895 then, Japanese control over Korea was pretty much assured and the Japanese influence and hold over the country began to increase. Koreans were suppressed like never before, and among this camp of suppressed Koreans, we can include Syngman Rhee. He was imprisoned in 1898 for membership of a revolutionary organization, the Independence Club. But Rhee was then released on the eve of the Russo-Japanese War, and with the help of some Korean and American friends, he made the journey to the land which he was to call his second home, the United States. The first port of call of he and his peers was to pay a visit to the Russo-Japanese peace talks brokered by the Americans in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in August 1905. It was there that Syngman Rhee actually met with President Roosevelt, as well as the United States' Secretary of State, but neither he nor his peers were able to make much of an impression on the Americans, who were eager to bring about peace in such a sensitive region. 
rebuffed from any political gains, refocused on his education again. A man of 30 years old by 1905, he attended George Washington University and got a BA in 1907, and then Harvard where he obtained a Master's in International Relations, and then a PhD from Princeton with the thesis title, Neutrality as Influenced by the United States. A thoroughly qualified Dr. Rhee thus travelled home to Korea as a Christian missionary to a very different Korea in 1910, one which was now technically part of the Empire of Japan. In 1910, just before Rhee had arrived, the Japanese had annexed the Korean Peninsula, and it didn't take long for Rhee to make his agitating presence felt once more. For the next two years, Rhee plotted and met with his fellow nationalist Koreans, and he was imprisoned yet again for a short time before American pressures resulted in his release. Arguing that Rhee had to represent Korea at an upcoming Methodist conference in Minnesota, Rhee was once again bailed out by his American friends. Syngman Rhee wouldn't set foot in Korea again until 1945, though he would receive a plethora of titles from different independent institutions, commending him as the president of this provisional group, or that group, or this government club, or that. Syngman Rhee was chosen to represent Korea at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference, but at the last minute he was prevented from going due to infighting with his peers. By this point in his life, Rhee knew something about Korean infighting, and his peers would have claimed that much of it was his own making. Since he had returned to America in 1913, he had rubbed several Korean expats the wrong way. When anyone disagreed with him, he set up his own school or church or organization, rather than compromise and have to share power with anyone else. The historian Richard C. Allen noted that, By striking out on his own when unable to win over opponents, Rhee became known for his intolerance and impetuousness. His admiring biographer concedes that Rhee's 25 years in Hawaii were marked with disputation. But by setting up his own institutions, Rhee was able to build up a strong personal following, some of which would follow him back to Korea in 1945. Just as Rhee was leading, leaving, and inventing new Korean nationalist organizations in his base in Hawaii, he would have been aware of the impact of a new idea on his homeland, that of communism. For many Koreans long-suffering under Japanese occupation, one of the most initially attractive aspects of communism was that it spurned all elements of imperialism. Communist cells worked their way across the border in the early 1920s and into Japanese-occupied Korea, maintaining a strictly secret style at all times and spreading their message through a growing underground. By this stage in its history, any Korean Communist Party which could be spoken of was ill-organized and not officially tied to Moscow, but in time, Koreans raised in the Russian style of communism, such as Syngman Rhee's rival, and we'll get to him, would come to dominate the scene and ensure that subservience of that satellite state to Moscow. The 1920s and 30s were years of further frustration and career growth for Syngman Rhee, who engaged wittingly in the different institutions of the era which could shine a light on the Korean situation. In 1933 in Geneva, Syngman Rhee represented the question of Korea to those present at a League of Nations conference at a time when events closer to home in Europe were coming to dominate the attentions of those assembled. It was at that same conference in Geneva that the departure of Nazi Germany from the League was announced, barely six months after Adolf Hitler had come to power. 
in his desperation, Re even attempted to acquire a visa to visit Moscow and to impress upon the Soviets the danger of the Japanese and the necessity in maintaining a free Korea. Joseph Stalin at this point was wary of the Japanese annexation of Manchuria, which had taken place in 1931, and the creation of a puppet state there, Manchukuo, at the same time. Stalin, like Syngman Rhee, appreciated that this would hamper Korean efforts to leave the peninsula through the traditional northern land route. With the Japanese now in control of Manchuria, surely Russian security fears would be heightened? Yet Rhee was to discover that everything had taken a backseat to Europe. His visa application was refused, as Stalin neither had the time to consider the Korean situation, nor wished to empower the independently-minded Rhee if he did consider it. As Stalin was aware, a native communist movement in Korea was being carefully nurtured, and there was no reason why Moscow should throw its lot in with the uncompromising Ri when a far more malleable figure could well emerge. Thus spurned once again, Ri turned to Washington and travelled there with his new wife only a few months after the Second World War broke out in November 1939. While Ri was there, he began work on another book designed to draw attention to the activities of Japan, which became far more relevant to American audiences after Pearl Harbor in December 1941. For the remainder of the war, Syngman Rhee stayed on as the chairman of the Foreign Relations Department of the Korean Provisional Government, which was based in Chongqing. In this capacity, he cooperated with the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, and when Japan surrendered in the United States Conference on international organization, he was the leader of the Korean representatives to request the participation of the Korean provisional government. By autumn 1945, in other words, Ri had established a reputation for being a renowned, well-educated and thoroughly westernized member of the Korean expat community. On the other hand, Ri was known to possess a dogmatic, uncompromising, ambitious streak a mile wide. At the end of the day, though, with a notable following that would likely follow him back to Korea, and with his aforementioned Western flavor counting in his favor, Syngman Rhee became the American pick to lead Korea as its president. Hold on, what's that? Korea doesn't exist as a unified country anymore, and only America holds sway over South Korea? Well, President Dr. Rhee isn't going to be very happy about that. Over a series of conferences, now infamous for different reasons, such as the free hand they granted Stalin in Eastern Europe, for example, Korea was brought up in the Cairo, Tehran, Yalta and Potsdam conferences, and on each occasion other issues seemed of far more importance. The almost apathetic consideration given to the future of Korea didn't bode well for the peninsula, but it was at Potsdam in July 1945, among the ruins of Nazi Germany, that some time was finally allotted to other issues aside from Germany, even if the future of Germany and of Europe dominated the proceedings nonetheless. President Truman, Clement Attlee and Joseph Stalin mulled over the new world which was sitting at their feet, and Truman in particular had something up his sleeve. Recently successful tests in the US atomic bomb program confirmed the new breakthrough in military technology, and within a month on the 6th of August, Truman would have authorised the first nuclear strike on another nation in human history. As delicately and seriously the atomic policy was considered though, Washington was destined to wander into Korea far more clumsily. Soon Sung Cho, in his book Korea in World Politics 1940-1950, to 
eased the burden of understanding the post-war mess which was made in Korea when he wrote, It is difficult to determine causality for all the complex phenomena, large or small, in the field of international relations. This is particularly true in an analysis of a major political situation of such complexity and widespread ramifications as the problem of Korean unification and independence in the post-war period. The failure of these 38 million people, with such a rich tradition of cultural achievement and an independent political heritage, to take their rightful place in the world community as a free, united and democratic country, may be considered tragic. In attempting to trace the historical events that led up to this national calamity, it is impossible to single out any one factor as being solely responsible for the present division of Korea. Many factors have contributed to the impasse. We're not going to delve much into the actual agreements made at the sequence of conferences, because in some cases they were held between only Roosevelt and Stalin, and their details were not even written down. One historian noted how, upon becoming president, Truman had to send a capable envoy to Moscow in a bid to probe at what the late Roosevelt had actually agreed to do in Korea. And it was at this meeting between Stalin and an American diplomat that Soviet intervention in the war with Japan was clarified, and its date on the 8th of August 1945 necessitated some kind of deal being struck regarding Korea, lest the Soviets run down the peninsula from Manchuria and occupy it in its entirety. In a bid to prevent this outcome of a Soviet Korea, Truman developed a trusteeship scheme, whereby the peninsula would be occupied by the Allies, then passed to international administration under the United Nations, and then granted full sovereignty. Another reason that it doesn't do us much good to examine the tenuous and tedious deliberations which addressed Korea's future is because such talks, limited as they were, rarely took into account the actual desires of the Korean people. The stunningly arbitrary way in which the peninsula was divided does require some retelling though, for it was on the 10th of August 1945 that a future US Secretary of State Dean Rusk and a Colonel Charge Bonesteel of the United States' Army arrived at a unique solution. For a time when joint trusteeship was proposed, the limits of each side's writ remained a tricky issue. Some leaned towards the natural borders provided by the Han River, for example, which flowed to the south of Seoul in a crooked line mostly across the width of the peninsula, sort of cutting it in half. In any arrangement, the Soviets would of course get the northern portion of the peninsula, since it bordered Manchuria, where a great deal of their soldiery still resided. Yet Washington understandably opposed the Han River idea, because it would neuter their zone of its most important city, Seoul. Thus it was fortunate that Rusk and Bonesteel landed on the compromise of the 38th parallel. The 38th parallel wasn't a political or even generally used geographic term in 1945. Instead, the 38th was an invented device which referred to the line marking 38 degrees north latitude, and which split the peninsula practically into two even halves. Since the measurement was a technical one, it was also neutral and thus more acceptable to all. At the same time, though, it must be emphasised that the United States was mostly relying on the Soviet Union to keep their word and not expand their authority forcibly on the peninsula. Washington would not land soldiers in Korea until the 8th of September, in other words, a month after the marking was made. And in the meantime, the better-placed Red Army could march through Manchuria and into the peninsula. 
This, incidentally, was the route that was taken, but under Stalin's orders, the soldiers stopped at the 38th parallel. However vague and dissatisfying the negotiations had been over the future of Korea, the Americans could take solace from the fact that Moscow would cooperate in the future to release Korea into an independent, unified state of existence. Stalin, on the other hand, was content to cooperate with the West for the moment, since he expected that the more united leftist and communist organizations in the peninsula would, sooner or later, unite Korea under the Soviet flag. Stalin was also aware of the intensive divisions on the peninsula, including the fierce rivalry between Christian rightist capitalist groupings and the leftist groupings, which threatened to tear the land apart. For several decades, the animosities of these groups had been directed at the Japanese, But with that power gone from the scene in late 1945, suddenly a vacuum existed, and there was nowhere for the Koreans to focus their energies but at one another. One historian put the situation thus, Koreans compare themselves to a school of shrimp caught between two whales. Whether the whales are fighting or making love, not to mention feeding, the shrimp have a short life expectancy. Apparently when the whales are otherwise engaged, the shrimp eat each other. Indeed, the frustrations at the unfulfilled promise of independence, coupled with the anger at the idea of trusteeship, provoked reactionary scenes which the Soviets could pin down in their sphere, but which the Americans ran headlong into in early September 1945. The need to bring about organised government was therefore apparent, as was the need for a strong leader to lead this beleaguered state of South Korea, recast as the Republic of Korea. Soon Sung Cho reminds us of the debilitating effect that Korea's recent history had on the peninsula though, and of the perhaps more uncomfortable fact that historians cannot blame all of Korea's woes on the interference of foreign powers. He wrote, For 35 years the Korean people have been deprived of political training and the art of governmental administration. The sudden exodus of Japanese officials left a chaotic situation that was unparalleled anywhere else in the world. The lack of political experience, administrative acumen and strong leadership made the Korean people easy prey for disorganized, irresponsible and highly fractious parties which spawned overnight. Had there been strong leadership and had the Koreans firmly agreed upon the goal of unification of their motherland, the prospects would certainly have been improved. Background details such as these are critically important to understanding why figures like Syngman Rhee arrived in October 1945 assumed power and then clung stubbornly to that power for the next 20 years. Although Cho emphasised the uniqueness of the Korean situation here, what is similar about that part of the world was that it, much like places in Europe, Asia and Africa, had just been through the deadliest conflict in human history. Perhaps then, when we attempt to gauge why Korea was divided or how the Soviets and Americans managed to divide it, we should focus, of course, on those governments, but we should also focus equal attention on the native situation on the ground. In the case of reason battled far-right supporters, as much as the growing communist organisation in the country, both the Americans and the Soviets were able to capitalise on the divisions which had existed in the region long before the 38th parallel became the new border. In the next episode, we'll pick up our analysis of Syngman Rhee's assumption of office, his development of the Republic, and his political tactics, and will do so in the context of Kim Il-sung's simultaneous rise. I hope you'll join me for the next installment, History Friends, but until then, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to episode 18 of The Korean War. Thanks 
for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.